From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. There has been in the past and continues to be a strange correspondence between Christians and church traditions that hold a high view of the Bible and at the same time a very careless approach to ecological responsibility. Mm -hmm. And that's why I thought that a Bible study might be an effective way to reach some people. Patricia Toll is an ordained Presbyterian minister and professor of Hebrew Bible. She's the author of Inhabiting Eden, Christians, the Bible, and the Ecological Crisis. She's with me via Skype to talk about it. Welcome, Professor Toll, to Progressive Spirit. Thanks for having me. How did you come to write this book, Inhabiting Eden? Well, um, I had been teaching Bible at Louisville Presbyterian Seminary for many years, but my sense of ecological urgency only crystallized in the last 10 years, and really not in connection with my profession as a biblical scholar. Um, when I began to realize um, the depths of the, the crisis that we were in, I started uh, at home. I started changing systems in our house to conserve energy and then started a green team at our church and a teach-in on creation care at the seminary. And I quickly realized that this was sort of an all-hands-on-deck situation, that it wasn't just people with environmental degrees who could and should address our human disconnect with the rest of creation, but that everyone in every professional walk of life was needed, and even strange to think, a scholar of ancient scriptures. And so around about that time, Westminster John Knox Press invited me to write a Bible study on any topic I wished. They were very generous in setting me free in that way. So I said, how about a, bi a book about the Bible and our ecological crisis? I proposed that not really knowing how helpful the Bible would be. I had a sabbatical, and my spouse and I started taking Master Gardener and Master Naturalist classes, and it just clicked. First, I realized how much of the world right outside my door I had been somewhat oblivious to, or at least less attentive than I it would be worthwhile to be. Then I realized that the natural world was ever-present, not just outside, but on every page of the Bible. The title of your book is Inhabiting Eden. Are we in Eden? Are we east of Eden? The biblical phrase that Steinbeck picked up in his book. Uh, can we return to Eden? Tell me about the title of your book. When I decided on the title of the book, I really wasn't thinking so much about the earth as a literal Eden, although I do talk about the Eden story um, yeah, as it turns out, almost every chapter of the book I refer to it. Um, but the earth really as as much of an Eden as I, for one, could possibly want. And I said at one point in the book that Scripture tells us that our original forebears lost the Garden of Eden before they realized what they had. Hmm. Not ever having been there myself, I have trouble picturing a world more exquisite than our own. I had a professor um, when I was in seminary. Uh, I remembered this scene. He's looking out the window and watching construction happen, and he just says, Riley, if we lived uh, in Eden, we'd blacktop it. <laughs> They'd pay paradise <laughs> and put up a parking lot. There it is. And, uh, and what, what you've just done, of course, is reread uh, a common text in, in light of, of earth care. Uh, and I wonder about another one. Uh, 
the Dominion passage, uh, Genesis one twenty six. God said, "Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and, and birds and all the other critters." A lot of mischief seems to have been done to Earth because of the command for humans to have dominion over other Earthlings. Uh, is there a narrow, another way to look at that passage? Um, yeah. Uh, reading this verse apart from its literary and historical context has been a huge problem, um, especially and really increasingly within the last 400 years. Um, I really don't think that what we attribute to the Bible is what it's actually saying uh, at this point, especially within context. Um, so um, if we want to understand what humans are here for, first of all, I would suggest that we need to stop using a single verse or a passage of three verses mm -hmm. as a slogan or as a scaffold um, which to en enormous theologies are built that are out of context and seek to understand this passage better in its own story. I'm not a theologian or a church historian, so I can only say a little bit about how this particular verse came to be viewed as the Bible's central message for human relating to the earth. What I've read is that a lot of this interpretation dates back to Francis Bacon in the 1600s. Hmm. In his book, The Interpretation of Nature, Bacon said that knowledge and control of nature were lost in the fall in Eden, but they could be regained through conquering nature to our will. He used shockingly violent metaphors of nature as a female to be controlled and penetrated. Carolyn Merchant has a book that's now about a generation old called The Death of Nature, where she identifies the Enlightenment as the period when science began to objectify and dissect nature. Before that time, she says, nature was conceived of as the benevolent mother of all things. After Bacon's time, this family metaphor began to be replaced by the conquest, rape and pillage dominion model. So evidently, a great deal of what people think today is a biblical view of dominion has very little to do with, with the Bible, with the Bible, and really much more to do with the past four centuries of so-called enlightenment rationalism. But if we go back to Genesis 1 and look at it in context, we see several crucial things. In all of the 30,000 or so verses of the Bible, there are only three verses that cast us in this dominion role. Genesis 1, 26, and um, two verses later, um, verse 28, and Psalm 8, 6, which uses actually a different Hebrew word that translators have rendered as have dominion. Other biblical conceptions of our relation to the rest of creation don't put us in charge at all. For instance, um, um, God's speeches to Job out of the whirlwind challenge Job's contribution, uh, comprehension of any part of the natural world. Job doesn't know the origin of snow. He can't make rain. He can't explain the life cycles of mountain goats and deer. According to God's voice from the whirlwind, even a domesticated horse is too powerful for his command. So this image of humans in a world that is beyond our comprehension and control is prevalent throughout the Bible. And it makes the idea of a dominion a, rather an outlier in biblical thought. Um, and, and, uh, and picking up again on the next story, the story of Eden, it, um, verse, Genesis 2 verse 15 says that, um, God put the first human being into the Garden of Eden to till and keep it. And if you go back and, and read the Hebrew here, 
Um, keep is close enough, but till really isn't quite right. It's a word uh, that means to work. So some biblical scholars are saying now that a better translation of that is that God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to serve and preserve it. So it's a very different role uh, to serve the ground rather than to, to have dominion over the other living creatures. And, and it's all about, um, about letting justice flow throughout the land. And, and that's, that's a very much um, a, a very prevalent theme um, throughout the Bible. If you are just joining us on Progressive Spirit, my guest is Patricia Tull. She is uh, the author of Inhabiting Eden, Christians, the Bible, and the Ecological Crisis. Uh, in your chapter on food and water, you talk about the irrationality of plastic water bottles. Uh, you know, I mean, how much we spend on water that's actually probably not as good as the stuff that comes out of the tap, uh, calling our use of these things uh, an orgy of waste. Can you talk a little bit about justice and, and food uh, and, and water in the Bible? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, plastic water bottles are just one example of waste, but they're a quite surprising one, given that each bottle of water costs about 800 times what the same amount of water from the tap costs. And as you said, it's less regulated than most tap water. To me, that's an example of how a lot of people just aren't thinking, not just thinking, not just not thinking environmentally, but not thinking, period. And given that what is often being drunk is someone else's water, a community that in some cases lost a battle to keep their water supply and not have it commodified by large industry and sold elsewhere, bottled water is often a matter of ecological justice, too. But you asked me to talk about justice and food in the Bible. The book of Exodus is extremely interesting in this way, and it was Ellen Davis in her book, Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture, who pointed this out. The story of Exodus begins with the Israelites living as slaves in Egypt, where they're building cities, and what they're actually building is grain storage cities, grain hoarding cities for a pharaoh mm. who enriches himself on the backs of not only these foreign slaves, but also his own people. The first 15 chapters of Exodus narrate how God, through Moses, helps these slaves escape bondage and how they then land in the desert where they're first they encounter a water shortage and then a food shortage. And here's where the story shows us that the economic system instituted by God in the wilderness was highly contrastive with the economic system of the Pharaoh that they had left behind. When the people complain of hunger, God tells Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. This is manna. It doesn't flow upward from the labor of the people to benefit the rulers, but it comes generously downward from the giver of all good food. But the way it comes is very interesting. It shows some clear principles. First, in a, a line that epitomizes the world of food justice. It says, those who gathered much had nothing over, and those who gathered little had no shortage. Everyone has enough. The greedy, or rather the go-getters, I guess, depending on your point of view, don't get more. And the lazy, or the considerate, don't get less. The second thing that um, is really interesting about the manna is that it spoils after one day. So people can't any more hoard it than they can hoard the air they breathe. They can enjoy their daily bread without thought of economic gain 
and without worry of loss. And so it means that food in this story serves its basic purpose of nutrition and not some side purpose of enriching some people at others' expense. And then the manna does the strange thing. It keeps Sabbath. Every seventh day it doesn't appear. And so people gather twice as much on the sixth day. And then they rest on the, on the seventh day. So what's interesting here is that people don't get a choice at this point. They have to live out this generous shared ethic of enough for everyone. Enough food, no hoarding, and rest from, from labor. But that's not going to go on forever. When they arrive at Mount Sinai, a few weeks into their journey, they are taught that when they arrive in the land flowing with milk and honey, food is going to abound. The physical constraints are going to vanish, but instead people are going to be asked to adhere to moral boundaries. They're given rules that govern land possession, farming, food choices, food sharing, and the treatment, killing, and eating of animals. These rules follow much down the line, the same principles that the manna did. The manna belonged to God, and now acreage in the new land will also belong to God. And it's only a loan to the people from God. In fact, um, even if somebody loses their land, they gain it back every half century, which narrows the gap between rich and poor and allows everyone to have a piece of land to farm and to eat from. So for those of us who even who no longer follow these Sinai rules specifically, the underlying principles of dependence, equity, generosity, rest, and limits all cohere with environmentally healthy practices. You have a chapter on several topics, a chapter on food and water, a chapter on consumerism, on different things, and you end each chapter with questions uh, for people to consider, so it's a good book for a study book. Uh, what I remember also catching in your book is it isn't necessarily just the specific things, you know, changing the light bulbs and all those things, those are important and all of that, but it's really a matter of changing how we believe uh, we exist on Earth, who we are. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, I think it is. What we're suffering from here is not so much a technological problem as it is a is a spiritual problem. Yeah, that's what I wanted you to talk about. What is the spiritual problem? Uh, one of the things that um, became really clear to me as I was studying for and writing this book was that we have a conception today uh, of a two-part world um, of humans, human culture, on the one hand, and nature, on the other hand, is two separate universes that are competing with each other. We often hear about economy versus ecology, jobs versus the environment, mm -hmm. you know, as if these are competing concerns and not part of a larger whole. It's, it's, that conveys the sense that nature starts, you know, when we walk outside of our door and we are not ourselves a part of nature and nature's not in us. And um, that's a very strange way of looking at things. What was kind of interesting to me reading the Bible in this light was realizing that the, the Hebrew language that the Bible was written in doesn't have a word for nature as a category. And it doesn't have a word for culture as a category. 
And so the conception there is that human culture or all that's human is living inside of nature. So it's um, a different way, I think, of looking at ourselves that is, is very important for us to, for us to grasp and to, and to come to appreciate. Um, I, I often tell the story of, um, I, I used to take um, seminary students to, to um, Friday worship at synagogues and mosques. Um, so they could, um, I, I started out doing this because uh, Hebrew students wanted to hear Hebrew in a worship service. And, um, you know, and then it went on, we, we went on to, to learn about interfaith worship. And one night we were sitting in a synagogue and the seminary student who was sitting right next to me cried through the entire service. And so I asked her, are you all right? And she said, I'm more than all right. She said, being here tonight is like finding out I had family I didn't even know I had. And that, you know, just struck me as one of the huge values that we're coming into as we realize our affinity with other faith groups around the world. And it's a potential value um, that we're, some people are coming into, I hope that most or everyone will, of realizing our affinity with not only other humans, but also with all that we see around us in one way or another. This is Progressive Spirit. My guest is Patricia Tull, author of Inhabiting Eden, Christians, the Bible, and the Ecological Crisis. Thomas Berry wrote in his book, uh, The Great Work, and it's, it's, this quote has been quoted a lot, I've used it a lot, where he says, the ideal of modern consumer society is to take the greatest possible amount of natural resources, process these resources, put them through the consumer economy as quickly as possible, and then onto the waste heap. And uh, this we consider as progress, even though the immense accumulation of junk is overwhelming the landscape, saturating the skies, and filling the oceans. I mean, it is all related, isn't it? They have consumerism, uh, the plastic bottles that we have, everything. Um, the idea of just this, on this train of uh, fossil fuel use and just get it out of the ground as fast as we can. Uh, related to an economy of abstraction. Um, mm -hmm. Somehow we have to think, and what we're, what we're talking about, isn't it a whole new way of imagining ourselves and thinking uh, of ourselves as earthlings on earth? And, and, and that's really, in a sense, as we've talked about, the, the task before us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very important. It's key. So one of the most interesting discoveries I made in the course of writing this book has to do with the history of consumerism. We weren't always this way. And we didn't get this way accidentally. About eight years ago, there was a wonderful article in Orion magazine by Jeffrey Kaplan. The article was called The Gospel of Consumption. And it briefly outlines what happened less than a century ago at a time when Americans were mostly very frugal and industries realized that manufacturing was outpacing our inclination to buy stuff because our needs were easily satisfied. There was a very carefully planned program to turn us from buying on the basis of need to buying on the basis of want. Mm -hmm. President Hoover's Committee on Recent Economic Changes reported that because, and this is a quote, wants are almost insatiable and one want satisfied makes room for another, therefore, they said, 
economically, we have a boundless field before us that they could exploit by what they called carefully pre-developed consumption. Hmm. So increasingly, economic growth depended on creating consumer demand. That's how cars first became numbered by model years, for instance, to remind everyone that their one-year-old car was out of date. This program was so successful in turning us from citizens into consumers that now we think it's we who have chosen this lifestyle. And that somehow having 10,000 different breakfast cereals from which to choose has made us richer. But this, uh, the consequences of this ethic of buy more, use it up, throw it away, get something else, rent a storage unit, get a bigger house to put all your stuff in. The consequences, enormous ecological damage. Often in places the biggest consumers don't see. Factories, incinerators, landfills tend to be placed where the poorest people are. And they suffer the consequences of our lust for consumer goods first, as does the earth itself. I'd like to turn our attention to Abraham. He looks at the stars uh, to get an idea of the number of his descendants. And uh, it's hard for us to care much past the next election cycle. Absolutely. Yeah, we live in this uh, world of, um, you know, 24-hour news cycles and um, quarterly reports and and very, very short-sighted thinking. Um, But I find the the Abraham story very, very interesting, um, not only because he's being asked to look to the welfare of his descendants and he's being asked to to act on things that aren't going to come to fruition until long after he's gone. But it's also interesting because when we look back on Abraham, we're already looking back 4,000 years, which is an inconceivable time span when you think about looking forward. Mm. Um, and it, it, it led me to thinking about the past and the future and, the, and a great irony that's involved in in the past and future. Because on the one hand, we can know the past, but we can't change it. There's nothing we can do to change what our ancestors did to make the world that we know today. And by contrast, we don't know the future, but we affect it every day. We're the ones making the future that we don't know. So I find that looking back at what can't be changed helps us see ourselves better through future generations' eyes and, and, to, and to begin to hope that our descendants will have cause to look back at us with, with gratitude. Well, as you know, many church bodies, including the Presbyterian Church USA, is considering um, divesting from the top 200 companies that have carbon in the ground, fossil fuel mm-hmm. divestment. Do you think this is a good plan? I do, um, and and not for the same reasons that other divestments um, perhaps have happened. There seems to me to be a real inconsistency between wanting ecological flourishing and at the same time investing in and profiting from the very market forces that are causing climate change and causing our destruction. And so it's on a just on a rational ground, it doesn't make sense for, um, for a body that makes ecological statements uh, like the churches do to also invest in fossil fuel. 
We started our discussion talking about how the Bible and the ecological crisis connected for you. Do you see this change happening on a, on a bigger scale? Well, I'm among those hoping we can see change and make the change. Um, mm-hmm. There has been in the past and continues to be a strange correspondence between um, Christians and church traditions that hold a high view of the Bible and at the same time a very careless approach to ecological responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that's why I thought that a Bible study might be an effective way to reach some people. And, of course, I haven't really heard of anyone saying, I love the Bible and hate environmentalism, so I guess I'll read this book. <laughs> but um, I figured it would be the more in- ecologically interested members of congregations who would pick it up and use it in adult study in the hope that others would join in. Yeah. I think I see changes. Um, the Pope's encyclical has made a huge difference over the past year in bringing environmental concern from the fringe into the center of faith talk. And not only faith talk, but worldwide policy and ethics talk. I work for um, Hoosier Interfaith Power and Light, and we're finding that we're having trouble now keeping up with the demand from congregations that want to get on board and know more and conserve energy in their buildings and advocate for better policies. The open question for me, and for many people, is whether the concern is growing quickly enough, mm-hmm. both with our government and industries, and among ordinary people whose opinions matter very much to both government and industry. We're hearing that this decade is crucial, and that the energy decisions that we make today can make the difference between a world that's simply less pleasant than it was in the past, and one that's actually uninhabitable. So no one person is going to make these differences alone. But the accumulated contributions of many can turn things around. I really believe that. And for the first time this year, I've begun to let myself imagine what it might be like to actually see the changes we need to make accomplished here and around the world. There are a lot of people, and I count myself among them, who aren't going to give up until this happens. And there are a lot of people in the past who have worked and dreamed and died without ever having seen the signs of hope that we see today. Their courage and faith inspire me in what I believe is the most crucial work of our generation and the opportunity to begin to live out a far greater joy and fulfillment than consumer culture could ever offer us. A life of contentment and gratitude and generosity. Patricia Toll has been my guest. She's the author of Inhabiting Eden, Christians, the Bible, and the Ecological Crisis, a very important book, a book very accessible uh, for study groups. Uh, Dr. Toll, thank you for the book, and thank you for spending time with me today on Progressive Spirit. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. From KBOO in Portland, I'm John Schock. Be welcome.